Welcome to Voyager's Journeys, where we hear the stories of some of the extraordinary people inside the Voyager's community working on impactful projects. I'm David Rowan, and today I am talking to Nina Tandon, who runs a company called Epibone to produce bones from patient stem cells. I hate the idea that we're replacing parts of our bodies with metal and plastic when cells grew our bodies in the first place and work to repair our bodies every day. It's a piece of science fiction that to me, I would like to see be science fact in my lifetime. Welcome, Nina. Thank you for having me, David. So Epibone has a very bold ambition and it's not an easy thing to achieve. I've known you for seven or eight years. In fact, I was a very early investor in the company because I saw something rather extraordinary and exciting. Tell us what's different about Epibone from other companies that are working with patients who need bone grafts. Well, bone is the most transplanted human material after blood. And unfortunately, the only way to get human bone for any of the million procedures around the world that require it is to cut it out of a human. And we have 206 bones in our body, 360 joints, and yet there's no part of our skeleton that we don't need. So those bone grafts must be cut from somewhere, either our own bodies, which means we have a secondary surgical site that's not pleasant, or we have to harvest them from cadavers, which are limited supply. Now, throwing on top of that, the 3 million people just in the U.S. alone who are getting their joints replaced because of, again, just a couple millimeters of damaged cartilage, you have a real you know, pressing need. When people are getting bones replaced, it's the gold standard, but we have that supply issue. With the case of joint replacements, we have a different problem, which is that we're using inert materials to replace living materials, and those inevitably fail. The the younger you are when you get a joint replaced, the less time it lasts. And so you can imagine if we're getting injured at 40 and living till 100 and 15, we need our implants to last as long as we do. So so what we're doing at Epibone is really combining the best of both worlds, the medical device industry, which has given us inert implants and has given us 3D printing. We're combining that with our bioengineering know-how in terms of how to take stem cells and turn them into living tissues. And we're making anatomically precise living skeletal implants, so bone and cartilage. And we're just entering the clinic now. This sounds tremendously complicated. You've got stem cell technology, you've got precision design, and then you're personalizing the reconstruction of people's bones for each individual patient. Right. That sounds like an awful lot for one startup company to take on. Well, it's an ambitious goal, you know, and we have a platform technology in terms of how do we tease that balance between the laser focus that a startup really needs to have in order to prove themselves and the bold vision and the, you know, big plans that we think our platform can really facilitate. I think it was important for us to choose our beachhead market, our first market to go into where we could really showcase our technology, really prove our superiority to other methods, and it would be a small niche market that would have less competition. So for us, this is bones in the head and face because shape really matters, the current treatment options are not very good, and it's a niche market of about 75,000 patients per year in the U.S. So that's our most customized product, our bone product. When we start now building on the platform after that, we are going after much larger applications with much larger numbers of, of patients who, who have this unmet need. And we also are building out our platform in a way that's really thoughtful so that 
we can cumulatively build on what we've done before. So our bone product, for example, uses a scaffolding in order to grow the cells in this three-dimensional kind of template, a three-dimensional puzzle piece shape that fits the, the site of the defect. We're using that same scaffold in our second product, which is an osteochondral product. Osteochondral means bone and cartilage together. So essentially we're making a partial joint repair solution, but we're leveraging the piece of bone that we made in our first product, okay? So in this way, we think we can very thoughtfully and efficiently demonstrate the power of the platform while still retaining that laser focus that a, a small startup team really needs. So you launched the company in 2013, mm -hmm. and it's not an easy journey to get to market, to get no. regulatory approval, to be used in surgery. You're now at the stage where you're performing human trials, which is an extraordinary achievement for an early stage company. But tell us how you got here. Tell us what sort of trials you've had to go through so far. Right. So we incorporated the company in 2013 and we spent basically the first year just trying to line up our funding and our facilities. We knew that we, in order to get government grants at the time, we knew that we needed to have a laboratory footprint. We couldn't afford a laboratory footprint until we had some funding. So we ended up solving that chicken and egg problem by working in a community, not a community biocenter, but one of these incubators in nearby Columbia University called Harlem Biospace. It was actually a converted candy factory called Sweets Laboratory. Really lovely place to call our first home. And we spent our first couple of years really raising the money to um, allow us to do the requisite animal studies that we needed to do to get into human. We needed to do toxicology studies. We needed to do efficacy studies. We needed to do the kinds of studies that would be what's called IND enabling. IND means investigational new drug. And because cells are our active ingredient, we are regulated by the FDA as a drug. So all of these studies that helped us understand what is the phenotype of the cells? How do we characterize the cells? Can we reproducibly grow the cells? What are the biomechanics of the grafts at the end of it? You know, we had to do about five years of studies in order to put our IND package together for the FDA. And that, that's been our real main set of activities. In addition to that, we had to build out our own facilities to be able to support this work. It's not enough to be able to say, this works in animals, let's try it in people. You have to also demonstrate to the FDA that you have a process for manufacturing for human grade. And so we built a clean room facility. We had in about a year after we started out in that Harlem biospace, we moved to SUNY Downstate Biotechnology Incubator and we built out 5,000 square feet of our own, including a clean room suite that had uh, what's called ISO 5 and ISO 8 clean room facilities. So basically a nested set of clean rooms that allow us to grow cells, not only sterilely, but also particulate free so that they would be suitable for, for, for human implantation. And, and that was another real important source of work for us to build up the quality management in parallel to the scientific work. So we were very happy when we received IND clearance two years ago. May 17th, 2019, <laughs> we remember it as IND Day in the, in the lab. And, and then after that, it took us almost an entire year 
to fold all of that FDA approval into hospital approvals. It's not enough to be FDA approved. You need to also be approved at the hospital level to implant patients. So that was another next set of pretty arduous tasks that was unfortunately slowed down due to COVID. But I'm proud to say we now have cells growing in the lab for our first patient who will be implanted in June of this year. That's a great achievement. How many patients do you need to get regulatory approval of the human trials? The short answer is it depends, but that's not very interesting because it depends on what. The number of patients that you need in a trial is related to the size of the end market for the patients, as well as the power of the study. So in our case, our initial safety study, because we're going after this very small niche market, it's only a six patient phase one, two, and it's it's a combination phase one, two, meaning, you know, mostly drugs have to go through a phase one safety study and then a phase two efficacy study and then a phase three where you uh, really power the study and try and get better data around the efficacy. But in our case, because there's no such thing as a healthy control, there's no version of take this aspirin if you don't have a headache and let's see if it hurts you. Um, A safety study for a product like ours where we're making an implant that lives with the patient for the rest of their lives, it was really, you know, the FDA combined phase one and two together for that reason. And it's a six patient trial. So we're going to be measuring the bone volume fraction, you know, via micro CT. We're going to be really imaging very well the interface between the implant and the patient's own bone. And we're going to be taking pain scores. That phase three trial is not likely to be a very large trial. We don't know how how many patients we're going to need in that until we read out the efficacy data from our current trial, but we're not looking at a thousand patient trial. We're, we're looking at, you know, a couple hundred at the most because this is a not very large market. But I, I hesitate to say anything on the record about that because the FDA is very sensitive to 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 what people say publicly. And, and you know, the, the fact is we really don't know. We have to see how well this works in our phase one, two, before we can really comment about the the structure of the phase three. And what sort of medical problems have these patients been undergoing? When people need complex craniofacial repair, it's really because of either cancer, trauma, or congenital defects. And it's interesting, patient one in our trial had a car accident, a 49-year-old male who you know, needs new two new pieces of his jawbone to be reconstructed. So he's a perfect candidate for us. He's otherwise healthy. He's young. But patient number two is a 17-year-old who's waiting to be 18 because he's got congenital defects that have given him a shape of his jaw that is not symmetric and has needed several revision surgeries over his lifetime. He wants to be just one and done and done with this. And he's waiting until he's 18 to enroll in our trial for a completely different etiology. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's very heartening now to be at the phase where we're, we're thinking about who these patients are and, and how we can help them. And if the trials go as you hope, how long until EpiBone is available more generally? You know, we're, we're targeting about five years of clinical trials. So we're in the path now. We're working hard and um, going to put one foot in front of the other for the next few years until we're done. We're going to have more products to do after that. But, you know, it's it's about five years per product. And you've already undergone some animal trials. Oh, yes. You have to do a ton of animal studies before you can go into human. So our osteochondral product, our partial joint repair, that's currently being evaluated in our second horse study. We did a first horse study 
about two years ago. We're now six months into our second horse study. And, and horses are a very difficult model. They're very heavy animals, put a lot of stress on their joints and their bones. You know, musculoskeletal injuries are the number one reason horses are, are taking, taken out of competition. There actually is a potential veterinary market but it's also an animal model where surgeons pay very close attention. You know, there's some animals that are just known for a lot of spontaneous healing, like especially the smaller rodents. But if you see data from a horse study, it's taken very seriously by the clinical community. So that's why we've, you know, again, taken the difficult path there. We just don't want there to be any question of, of efficacy and, and we've, we're also working on a third product, an injectable cartilage product. This is a game-changing market, you know, many billion dollar market and, you know, can help people with lower grade cartilage lesions. We're currently testing that in the canine population now. And again, there's a veterinary market for that down the line. So, you know, we're always looking for ways that we can do the difficult work, answer everyone's difficult questions, leave no room for interpretation and, uh, and potentially unlock some veterinary markets along the way. If we think about the humans, though, explain what the process is, how it works, how long it takes, mm-hmm. what might go wrong in the process. So if you needed a new bone for your face, David, we would first start with two things. We would take an image of your face, a CT scan, so that we can understand the geometry of your underlying craniofacial skeleton. We would also take a small sample of adipose tissue from you. That's the flight way of saying fat tissue. And we would extract the stem cells out of it and we would grow those cells in the lab. Now in parallel with growing those cells in the lab, we would take that image of your skeleton. We would be working with the surgeons to design the perfect puzzle piece shape graft that you'd need. We'd engineer a piece of biomaterial in that shape we would make a bioreactor that's the reverse image of that same anatomical shape. And so we would infuse those stem cells into our bioreactor and cultivate it for a period of three weeks. Our bioreactors are a proprietary IP that um, essentially is a biomimicry system that mimics the conditions of the human body, providing controlled oxygen, nutrients, and mechanical forces that essentially exercise the cells and help them you know, drive their lineage down into bone. So after three weeks, we have a piece of bone that's ready for implantation. Now for cartilage, cartilage has much larger numbers of patients in need. Cartilage is also an immune privileged tissue. So we're leveraging that immune privilege by working with donor stem cells for generating our cartilage products. So our cartilage products are much more off the shelf, although we can customize them if need be, but we really envision that as more highly scalable products with a shelf life and they take us four weeks to generate, but you know, we would be able to maintain those and, and, and be able to, to sell them to the clinic. So our most customized approach, our most personalized approach is for bone, but we're mapping towards more scalable approaches for our, our pipeline products. This is relatively fresh science. It's not like there are hundreds of companies already out there on the market. Not really. Who do you see as your competition? Well, you know, our closest competitors in the cell therapy space, there's a Israeli company called Bonus Biogroup that is developing a kind of bone slurry that matures in the body after implantation. They've completed a phase one study in Israel. They're a publicly traded company. And they've been around for quite a while. The closest competitor we have in the cartilage space is a company called 
Vericell. They're a publicly traded company. They have a marketed product called Macy, and they've really been inspirational for us in terms of, you know, not just the science, but how can we do better than what they're doing? But how can we also copy what they've done in terms of the um, achievement of not only an approved product, but a reimbursable product? Because the economics for personalized medicine is still a work in progress around the world. You know, these products have the potential to save healthcare systems a lot of money by preventing surgeries and revision surgeries down the line. It's been really heartening to see a company like Vericell that's been able to achieve reimbursement. And we have a lot of respect for what they're doing. You know, you stand on the shoulders of giants, and I think they've done a really good job at inspiring the field and inspiring scientists like us to try and build on what they've done and, and continue to bring better solutions to patients. EpiBone is not yet a public company. It's a long journey to market. You've been going for eight years. You mentioned mm-hmm. five years of human mm-hmm. clinical trials. How do you persuade investors to back a company when it's going to be so long before they get revenue back? Yeah, well, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, thank goodness we're not the only company that was in that position. Biopharma companies are notorious for how capital intensive we are and how long the time to revenue is. We're not quite aerospace, <laughs> but, you know, or, or oil and gas, but there are some parallels there. Now, there has also been a lot of precedent, especially in, in the past decade or so, with companies that are going public even while pre-revenue. So the path to exit for investors can be oftentimes a lot shorter than the path to revenue for the ultimate pipeline of products. So I think investors that are familiar with the space understand that. But, you know, biopharma is not everybody's cup of tea, I think, for those reasons. It's it's a difficult path. It's a long path and, and tends to attract people that are very passionate about science, maybe even science fiction too, <laughs> and and also somewhat patient in their impatience, if you know what I mean. You know, they're impatient to see a different world and not afraid to invest in it, but also very supportive of the founders that they work with. For, with That's the way they show their patience. And you've raised so far around $25 million. That's right. $25 million, $3 million of that has come from non-dilutive government grants. And the remainder has come from angels, then angel groups, and then, and then venture capital firms must be a hard pitch to the VCs when you can't promise to spin the investment in a six or seven year timescale as they're used to. VCs really love to have, you know, a 10x return in a short or a 100x return in a short period of time. And this type of field, if you don't get them to invest, maybe even at the company formation stage, if they don't get in very early, a lot of times those economics don't work out. And we've seen lots of other types of investors. We've seen these trends of family offices and high net worth individuals starting to take away some of the VC share from, from one side. And then from the other side, we're starting to see private equity and SPACs start to eat away at venture capital as well. So it's it's going to be a really interesting few years to see how all those different pies shake out and who's going to have what share of what. But we've definitely found our ourselves gaining traction with some of the more types of investors you wouldn't think investing in early stage companies, some of these crossover investors or even private equity. So we'll see which allies are going to help Epibone reach patients. You know, we are on a mission to change the way the human body is repaired. 
And um, I really do view this as my life's work. I was working in academia for 10 years prior to starting the company. It's been almost 10 years now since starting since starting the company. Anything worth doing is is for me usually something that's pretty hard to do. So it's it's almost 20 years in now, and and I hope that you know in another 20 years looking back, I'll have moved the needle been some in some way towards changing the way the body is repaired. I hate the idea that we're replacing parts of our bodies with metal and plastic when cells grew our bodies in the first place and work to repair our bodies every day. It's it's a piece of science fiction that to me I would like to see be science fact in my lifetime. Explain Nina how you decided to launch a business where you can grow bones from patient own cells. How did that journey begin? You know, I, I was in academia. I was an electrical engineer that found myself studying the electrical signals around wound healing and development. I wasn't really interested in starting a company around it. I mean, I'd always been entrepreneurial as a kid. I had a little babysitting business like the Babysitter's Club. I was definitely a child of the 90s in that respect. So I had an entrepreneurial kind of mindset, but I really enjoyed difficult scientific questions and engineering. But I think the aha moment for me in terms of taking this work and, and doing what we call translating it towards the clinic, it was, it was kind of two different things happening in parallel. One was that after my PhD, I decided to take a job in the dark side as a you know, management consultant at a big firm um, called McKinsey & Company working in their pharma and med device practice. And this was an eye-opening, amazing experience for me, meeting CEOs, wrestling with difficult decisions, and um, really seeing that process of what it looked like, the business of healthcare and the people behind it. And that really made it seem more accessible to me. And, and these companies were looking at smaller companies to buy. And those companies were always being spun out of academia. And I think that was the other part of the aha moment was realizing that we had a piece of technology, i.e., you know, how to grow bone and cartilage, that was kind of getting to the point where academia could keep fostering it and when it really needed to take new life in a new company. And realizing that in industry, these big companies were looking to the little guys in academia to spin out. And I think that's when we realized, okay, it's time for us to spin out our own company. My PhD advisor and then postdoc advisor, you know, she sponsored my MBA at Columbia and we really used the MBA program almost as an incubator for the company. And a lot of my professors and, and classmates from business schools and entrepreneurs and residents, you know, all became part of our community that helped us spin out and have helped support us in the years since. You grew up in New York. Did you come from an entrepreneurial family? I come from a big family, one of four kids. My parents had normal jobs. You know, my dad was a banker in oil and gas, and my mom was a CPA working on Wall Street. I'm not from like a long line of entrepreneurs, but I think the engineering mentality and the kind of DIY mentality that we were raised with, I really think does kind of sink in. I mean, the closest thing that we did to entrepreneurship as children was our little babysitting co collective. <laughs> I'm one of three sisters and we have a brother too, who would sometimes, you know, pitch in, but you know, my mom would be commuting. And if she saw moms pushing a shopping cart, she'd do biz dev for us and say, Hey, I've got teenage daughters. Do you need a babysitter? And next thing you knew, we had Excel spreadsheets and we were managing people's calendars and saying, do you need two tandem sisters or just one? Do you, are you having a party and all that stuff? And, and so I think, 
in that sense, being entrepreneurial was kind of in my blood, but you know, I didn't expect that I would be on this path. If you talk to me as a little kid, for sure not. But on the other hand, it also just does make sense that I would be here in a, in a way. I mean, I have two small kids myself now, and I wonder what are they going to do? What comes naturally to them? What is What gives them joy? What's the intersection of in the future, what will give them joy and they can also give to the world? I don't know. It's, it's fun to watch that blossom now with my little kiddos. Was there a mentor who led you into a more scientific direction? Oh, yes. So many. Oh, I've been so blessed. I mean, my fifth grade science teacher, Mr. Ferraro, I loved him. I loved my seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Slivko, who I was still in touch with, you know, up until just a couple of years ago. I wonder what he's up to now. In college, oh, in high school, I had Mrs. G, who um, was my biology teacher and, and had leukemia and, and passed away at 36. And I was very close with her. I feel like she's an angel, you know, guiding me even now. And, you know, my my undergrad thesis advisor, Toby Cumberbatch, is someone I'm very close to even now. I, he's almost part of the family at this point. And then, of course, my PhD advisor, Gordana, she's my second mom. I, I have been blessed to have professors and, and even middle school teachers who who always kind of encouraged me. I mean, I went to public school like in, in New York, but I did have teachers that all that would encourage play with science and take us on field trips, like teach us about metamorphic rock in like the Fort Tryon Park in Manhattan. I didn't know we had igneous and metamorphic rock in Manhattan. You know, I think I did really have really good science teachers in, in school. You know, it's one of the things I most like about being even very tangentially involved with academia. I only teach one module of one class, one semester a year at, at MIT as part of their community bio initiative. And I teach a bioreactor module, but there's something about just having the opportunity to help students along their way that I think just means a lot to me. A lot of people have done that for me and, and do every day. It's a karma industry that we're in. Are we putting good energy out there? Are we doing the right thing for people? Are we consistently doing that every day, whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood? That is, you know, to me now, 20 years in, that's the pattern that I see emerge. Do you show up every day, even if it's hard? Do you connect with the joy that you do have for the parts of the work that you do have? It makes a difference. Like rivers made the Grand Canyon, drops of water, you know, I... I, I feel like those aspects of nature and the human experience are, are what I really connect to now. I feel like, you know, an endurance sport, <laughs> like I'm, I'm an athlete in an endurance sport. I used to run marathons. I don't anymore. I don't even walk marathons, but you know, you get to the 13th mile, you get to the 20th mile, you hit the wall, but you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm not in a race to win that marathon. I'm I'm a completionist. Like I just I want to I want to finish. This is my life's work. This is what I'm here to do is to share my love of of nature, my love of cellular nature and the power that cells have to, you know, support our human bodies and and our human experience by extension. But there must be days when you think 
this is too hard. It's yeah. just going to be so difficult to get to where we want to get to. What keeps you motivated during those tough times? I have a few people I call for SOSs, you know, when I'm feeling like I'm on the ledge, I'm feeling lost. And I like to think that a few people have me as an SOS too. I've had some pretty difficult times and where you, you, you get to the point where you say, if I were the board, would I fire me? <laughs> you know, or, you know, is there something, is there a stone that I'm leaving unturned? And I start asking people, I, you know, they say that, you know, there's the flight or fight response when you're really stressed, when you see a tiger, it's fight or flight. But I've also heard people talk about tend and befriend, which is something that, you know, the female of the species has been, you know, I don't want to get into gender dynamics, but, you know, if there's a tiger coming into the village, some people would say not just fight or flight, but who's around me? Are the kids okay? You know, and, and I think when I'm feeling very stressed by kind of taking a step back, reconnecting with the people that have known me for a long time, and the more years that pass, the longer those time periods get. There's a few people who I call for SOSs. Maybe, you know what, I'll give a shout out to one of them. There's a woman, a magical woman in the world named Sunny Bates. Her name is Sunny for a reason. I think that maybe, you know, there maybe the earth does revolve around her. She is a force of nature and has been with me through thick and thin. And, and she's an SOS that's not a scientist. She came to my baby shower, came to my wedding. You know, she's also someone that I call if I'm having trouble thinking through a thorny issue. You know, Gordana has been my mom through so many different iterations of my career. She's a person that if things are getting serious, I, I give her a chat. And then I also have peers that I, I think are really important for, especially for CEO founders to have. You know, I have my friend Andras Forgox from Modern Meadow. He is like not exactly in my industry, but he's a couple years ahead and he's also in biomanufacturing and he's one of my SOSs. I've got a few people that are either at my level, not too far ahead that they can't see my problems. And then some people who are just a little bit outside and can help remind me of who I am and why I'm here in the planet. So I love those people. I treasure them. I hope they treasure me too, but I definitely treasure them. <laughs> you also have the Voyagers community, people working in health tech who are there to be supportive to you. I we love the WhatsApp group. It is one of the most active WhatsApp groups I've ever seen in my life. It's like, it's, I, I really, I'm, I'm new to the community, but I, I'm really excited for, you know, especially for you to start convening people in person again. I want to go hiking with these people. <laughs> I want to go in a, I want to, explore a new part of the world and take a walk with some of the folks in the community for sure. I promise you we're going to do that. But in the meantime, we always see what somebody's ask and offer is from the community. So Nina Tandon, what can the Voyagers community do for you as your ask? But also in return, what do you think you can give back to the community? Well, let me start with what I think I can offer. You know, I'm, I'm mid-career. I know how to start a company, form a company. So when, if, you have a, if anyone in the Voyagers community is more at the startup formation phase, let me be your SOS. Let me be that person you call if you're saying, I don't know how to set up payroll. I don't know how to set up my company. I don't know who to recruit when. Who's the best person to get money from first? How do we move up the food chain? Those kinds of questions, I'm your girl. If you're at the stage in a biomedical enterprise where you're having trouble 
crystallizing your thoughts in a pitch deck? How do you make all those beautiful biomedical illustrations that show the beauty of your platform technology, but also can speak to a regular person? We've had to really struggle with that, as you can imagine. And there's a lot of education that we have to do for our folks. So, you know, I'm, I'm a good person to help craft pitch decks and connect you with folks who can do biomedical illustration, biomedical animations, help get the story in a, in a package, in a form that is digestible by lay people. You know, where am I at and what do I need help with? Like, I think I'm at the stage now where we've gotten to this point of de-risking from a technology standpoint. And you can imagine we've invested very heavily in R&D to do that. We basically said every dime of runway that we have, we are going to put on the lifeboats for our technology. And so as a result, we've gotten to this point now where our business organization is pretty underdeveloped. And so that's where I think I really need help is how to, you know, org up my business team and get ourselves to a position where we can successfully perform a crossover to an IPO or a SPAC, you know, be able to do that to leapfrog relatively quickly in terms of building up our business team the way that we've painstakingly um, built up our R&D and quality organization. So I'd love to hear from you if you have advice or, you know, can help help us along our way. Nina Tandon, CEO and founder of EpiBone, biocultivating human bone. Thank you for inspiring us. Thank you for joining us on Voyager's Journeys. Thank you, David. And thank you for doing everything you do for all of us founders. I can't wait to, to meet the other kiddos in my cohort and cause some trouble. You've been listening to Voyager's Journeys, the podcast of the Voyager's community. Find out more about Voyager's at voyager's.io and maybe join us. I'm David Rowan. Thank you for listening.